this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, we're picking up... uh, kind of right in the middle of the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this week. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, if you guys want to turn there, Uh, right? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's this countercultural manifesto of what it looks like to follow him. He outlines the characteristics, the attributes, the traits that he expects of his followers, what life ought to look like for you and me. And I don't know if any of you were convicted as we've been walking through this teaching through the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, and realizing there are areas that Jesus considers very important that I've not put a lot of insight to. I've not given a lot of direction to, like loving my enemy or loving my neighbor or, <laughs> or uh, you know, practicing forgiveness. There, there are things that Jesus actually makes a really big deal of in the Sermon on the Mount that really culturally we kind of make light of and. I don't know about you, but I've experienced conviction as we've been walking through this teaching, and I hope that you have too. Um, that's kind of a weird thing. It's like, I hope you're convicted. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> but right, he outlines these characteristics, these traits that he expects of his followers, like loving your enemy, practicing mercy and forgiveness, you know, walking in meekness, praying, fasting. Woo, you guys remember when we talked about fasting? Uh, judging other people, judging them well, following the golden rule, which we talked about just a couple weeks ago. These are all attributes that Jesus expects of you and I, right? I don't think that this is like just good life advice that Jesus was kind of like putting away for like some self-help book some other time. But his Sermon on the Mount was laying down expectation for what it would look like to follow Jesus, He's saying here that if you're one of my disciples, this is what you'll do. It's not just a suggestion, it's a commandment. And I want us to take the words of Jesus very seriously uh, in that light as we continue walking through his Sermon on the Mount. Because he doesn't end his Sermon on the Mount with like revisiting all of his main points or like a cutesy little like... uh, Uh, like form of alliteration or something like that, or this nice little story that kind of brings everything together. He actually issues very three sober and strong warnings to kind of conclude his teaching on loving your enemy and doing unto others as you'd want to be done unto yourself, right? And practicing forgiveness. All of this stuff comes uh, to a culmination with three very, very strong and pointed warnings. Last week, we looked at the first of these three, uh, which was Jesus talking about him being the only way to the Father, right? He talked about the narrow gate, That's what we looked at last week, walking through the narrow gate, walking along the narrow path, the way that is hard, (laughs) that leads to life. And we understood and we examined the fact that following Jesus is not easy and it was never promised to be easy. It's It's not overly complex. In fact, we talked about the simple gospel, but it's definitely not easy. And I'm sorry if anybody ever lied to you that told you that saying yes to Jesus was just going to be like pressing a magic button because that's just not true. 
If that has worked for you, please talk to me because I need to figure out what you're doing. But I know for me, dying to the flesh daily, taking up my cross and following him is something that's not easy. It's actually impossible outside of his help. And so we talked about that last week. And if you want to look back at any of our other sermons, we've got them on Apple Podcasts. We got them on our website. We got it on YouTube, Facebook, all of them. I think Adam's even throwing up like snippets on Instagram because we're cool. Woo. <laughs> Hip and stuff. Can you throw like a filter on there or something? Please don't. Uh, yeah, some fat beats. <laughs> there we go. Um, saying that, we talked about the narrow and the wide gate, the first of... Uh, a pretty sober warning of Jesus that many would enter through the broad gate, the easy way that leads to destruction, but few would enter through the narrow gate and stay on the narrow path, the way that leads to life. And uh, that's a, that's a, those, are, those are the words of Jesus. Those are hard words. Uh, we lightened it up a little bit, Elliot and I did, when we were snowboarding and skiing last year, and we, we wanted to have like a, a good like translation if we were ever going to start like a, a mountain ministry, and we talked about how steep and deep are the tree lines that lead to life, and wide are the groomers that lead back to the lodge, <laughs> or destruction. It was pretty bad. We like the trees, and it's fun, uh, and that's completely out of context. I thought it would be very fitting for me to use an example of taking a verse that sounds good, but is really not to talk about false prophets today. Is that okay? Because <laughs> I, I recognize the irony of a pastor preaching a message about false prophecy. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But this is the second of some very sober warnings that Jesus is using to tie down and wrap up his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in Matthew seven fifteen. Uh, verses 15 through 23 is uh, where we're going to be today. Um, but just uh, beginning in 715, we, re- we read, uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Continue on here because I accidentally deleted my notes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." This is some pretty heavy, intense language of Jesus, right? This is not like the passage of Scripture that everybody is like, ooh, yeah, this makes me feel all good inside. This is sober. This is strong. This is something that Jesus definitely commanded the attention of the people that were listening that day. They weren't just kind of like, oh, what did he say? No, I I believe they had his attention. uh, Jesus had their attention when he was saying this because this was strong, strong language. And I recognize, friends, there is uh, irony in the fact that I'm a pastor preaching this message about false prophets. I'm really not sure whether I should make the disclaimer now 
that I'm, I'm not a false prophet or if I should like sneak it in later and try to convince you that I'm not. Um, but isn't that like what a false prophet would say and do, right? And it's like, hey, I'm not a false prophet. <laughs> like, isn't the whole idea about uh, these deceiving teachers uh, kind of wrapped up in the fact that they're deceiving? Like, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of an important aspect. So uh, could I deceive you in this morning thinking that, hey, I'm not a false prophet, um, but I really am? And then you're like, what the heck is going on? Pastor Nate, what are you talking about? Wouldn't a good swindler convince you that he's not a swindler, right? Isn't that like, like part, of the, part of the scheme? Herein lies the issue with deceptive false teachers. They're deceiving, <laughs> right? That is, that's kind of the cloak. And so what do you do with deceptive, deceiving people? And how can you tell if somebody is actually uh, genuinely a uh, true prophet or true teacher, a true signpost or, or, or spokesperson for God, or if they're false, well, uh, Jesus, um, he, he says in the last days that many false prophets would arise, right? That many people would be deceived. And so we really have to figure out this, the answer to this question, how can we know who to trust? And Jesus says that we're to examine them by their fruit. Well, we're not called to bring judgment flippantly upon anybody. Um, we are called to discern. We're, we're called to be fruit inspectors, if you will, of those who claim to speak on behalf of God. A prophet in this sense is one who is speaking on God's behalf. And I'm sure I'm not bringing like some profound, like revelatory, like truth bomb drop when I tell you that there are people in our culture, there are people in churches throughout America, there are people worldwide that are propagating a gospel that is not one that Jesus is speaking. Like I don't need to, I don't need to convince you that every face on, on the Christian whatever televangelist network that you turn on on some weird cable channel is not saying what the Holy Spirit's saying. <laughs> I don't need to, I, I hope not. Just, just, just to be very clear, not everything that sounds spiritual is truth. Not, not every spiritual person that says something, even if they're using the Bible, is correct, Right? That's why it's important that we know this book. We understand that we have to know Jesus and know him intimately and know his word. Because if we don't, we can be deceived by any kind of fallacy known to man. It happens. You know, when I first moved here, there were people praying like quarters to windows. And they're like, see how awesome God is? I can pray this like sticky quarter to a wall or something like that. You know, they weren't praying them to windows. They're praying them to walls. It's like, this is a sign that God loves me. And maybe sure, at some point in time, that was cool. And that was like, maybe God did that for somebody else. But like, I literally took a quarter and like pressed it to a wall and been like, okay, this is neat. Um, I remember Pastor Dwight telling me he had like a kid come to him and like, well, can you pray it to the window? Okay. It really was like pointless. It really didn't have anything to do with anything. And Neither does this story. Um, <laughs> but the reality is there's some like weird stuff out there, especially if you hang around like the charismatic circle, which we kind of are. You know, we're Pentecostal. We believe in the gifts of the spirit. 
And uh, I hate to say it, but there are like some weird voices that rise up that are not Jesus. Um, you know, that are not what the Holy Spirit's speaking. And it's important that we're grounded in this book, that we're grounded in this word to know when people are off base. Like if I just told you, like God told me to give, that you should give me all your money right now. And you'd be like, uh, is that really God? And it was like, I am the man of God. I am the prophet. I am the pastor. I have a card in my wallet that says I am endorsed by the assemblies of God. Now you have to do what I say or you're not in God's will. I'm not, please don't take that soundbite and put it on Instagram. <laughs> but, but for real, like we, there are ministers that are doing this, that are financing mansions and private planes and stuff that I believe breaks the heart of God, right? We, we, we've seen that, right? This isn't like news to anybody that people misuse the gospel, misuse like teaching gifts and they're authority in scripture to abuse people like this this is something that happens but just because somebody uses the right language even if they use the bible even if they perform miracles like we see here they don't that doesn't equate to them actually speaking what god is saying jesus tells us that we need to be diligent that we need to be aware he's saying beware of false prophets uh, because uh, there is a real, very real possibility for us to be deceived. In Matthew chapter 24, he talks about false prophets arising and deceiving even God's elect, God's chosen ones, is what Jesus says when he's talking about the end of the world. And so Jesus tells us the metric by which we're to judge a person and their ministry on whether or not they're speaking on behalf of God, whether or not they're legitimate, um, Jesus's metric for that is this common one that's found in scripture. It's a pretty popular one for Jesus. Uh, and it's this metaphor of fruit. He's saying, do they have good fruit or do they have bad fruit? And essentially, I think if, it, if we were going to wrap up this, uh, this kind of thought here is the fact that Jesus is saying, like, is their life, is the works that are the works that they're doing reflective of what they're actually teaching? Do their is their lifestyle one that backs the truth or, or the message that they're propagating? This is something I think it's important to note here because anybody that has spent any amount of time reading the Bible and kind of studying judgment and the theme of judgment in the Bible, they'll, they'll come to this conclusion that it teaches, this book here teaches, that our end-all final destiny is determined by our works. Okay, I was hoping to get a reaction from somebody. Boom. Because, because Adam literally just took like probably 30 minutes before our worship practice to talk about how it is by grace that we're saved. He, he, he was in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2.8. If you want to put this up here, like 2.8 and 9. Um, I didn't text that to Adam to put in the computer, but it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Whoa, Nate, you're contradicting yourself here. You're saying that it's not, uh, that your works aren't what determine salvation. And I would agree with that statement. We're saved by faith, not by works. But judgment 
And the judgment of God is 100% reflective on what we do or what we don't do. You'd be neglecting a huge part of Jesus's teaching if you bought into this lie that what you do is not important to him. It has to move beyond what you believe and what you profess and manifest into action. And so I am 100% not saying that we are saved by what we do. I don't want anybody to get that kind of, uh, kind of uh, thought process uh, kind of misconstrued here. But we are 100% responsible for what we do post-salvation. Our salvation is based entirely on Jesus and his sacrifice at Calvary. I would not deny that at all. But if you try to ignore the fact that you'd have to ignore way too much of what Jesus teaches, way too much of scripture to, to think that works are irrelevant. I wrote this down. We are saved by faith, but the Bible and Jesus are cleared. We are judged by works. Every example of judgment and godly pronouncement of judgment in the scriptures is directly correlated to works. You can go back Old Testament. You want, you want Old Testament examples? Read Deuteronomy 28. Read Psalm 1 for, for, all that, for all that matters there. If you jump fast forward, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, every single pronouncement of Jesus to the churches in the, in the book of Revelation begins with, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. It, it, it's important to, to know this, friends. What you do is important to Jesus. Because the way that you live has to reflect the message that you're preaching. Else you're in danger of being considered a false prophet. <laughs> if I'm being honest here. But you can, you can read that. Read Revelation chapter 2. Read Revelation chapter 3. Read Deuteronomy 28. Read Psalm 1. And you will come to this conclusion that there is judgment based upon what we do or what we don't do for that matter. Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 says this. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward each according to what he says he believes. No, it says, according to his works, what you do, what you don't do. Matthew 25, 31. This is a, this is a, a good chunk of scripture, but I, I want to drive this point home. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on his throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a, separate, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see a you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it for one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you curse into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't take this up with me. Take this with up Jesus. This is intense. This is strong. He's saying this, uh, not because they did bad things. Notice this, but they neglected to do the right things. Okay. There was no level of indifference if we hearken back to Matthew chapter 7 that we were just reading, it's not the tree that doesn't have any fruit. That, uh, it's the tree that has no fruit or bad fruit that gets cut down and thrown into the fire. There's not like a neutral ground. You don't get to remain indifferent. Okay? I don't know if that made sense or not, but not a point that I was planning on making. But he goes on here and he says... Um, in verse 42, for I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous into eternal life. What I'm getting at here, what Jesus is saying is that anyone who is genuinely speaking on his behalf is going to have the lifestyle to back it up. We see here action or inaction determining a final place of judgment here. This is intense, right? This is, this, these are the words of Jesus that he's speaking here. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Get that? That there is judgment coming based on what we've done or what we haven't done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust that we are well known in your conscience. There that they are well known in your conscience. Okay, very clearly, I cannot reiterate this enough because I'm not just talking about salvation. Salvation, the gift and privilege of coming into right standing with God is not something that we earn. Adam was talking about Islam this morning, and it's not this cosmic scale of our good outweighing our bad. That's not what I'm getting at. You cannot do enough good to get into heaven. Please don't label me a heretic or a false prophet right off the bat. <laughs> but the expectation of Jesus is that if you profess him, your actions will back that claim up. The lifestyle that you live will reflect uh, what you speak or you fall into the category of being a false prophet or having false profession of God. And for me to, to help wrap my mind around this, to help kind of really condense this, it's just a, a good, healthy reminder that Jesus didn't just die to get you out of hell. Salvation is more than you getting that get out of hell free card. Salvation is more than just escaping damnation. I was saved from something, yes, but I was saved into something simultaneously. I was saved into 
the realm of discipleship, and that is important for us to understand. I was saved out of hell, I was saved out of sin, and saved into relationship, saved into discipleship. And we can't have one without the other. Too many people have bought into the lie that they can say a prayer and, you know, they, they, they felt better and they did the thing. They raised their hand. They filled out the card or something and, and, and continue on with life as usual. But Jesus asks, he demands for a lifestyle change if we're going to reflect him properly. Otherwise, I don't know why Jesus wastes all his time teaching us and telling us how we ought to live. People, people confuse me when we look at his teaching. People confuse me when I, when I hear the language saying, you know what, Jesus just, man, if you say this prayer, all is good. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you do. It's all under grace. God is forgiving. And that's, some of that is true. But why else would he waste so much of this book telling us how we ought to live? Okay. Now, now it's going to get really confusing here in just a minute. Because when we think of false prophets, like I use the example of the guy on TV, right? And, you know, you, you got, he's selling like holy water and whatnot, and you just keep sending seed money. Uh, those don't, please. I don't, I don't have to have like insight into anybody's ministry, but if they're selling you something and asking you to send seed money or something, just come talk to me. I, I, uh, I, would, I would strongly suspect there's some, uh, some wrong motivation, some, self, some, some false prophecy going on. But you guys might think of like televangelists, you know, the, the TV preachers or the rich mega church pastors, and, and you think of all these kind of labels. You know, we're quick to really want to label everybody a false prophet, right? And we kind of use it as this, this verse kind of as ammunition for like, establishing a witch hunt because, you know, there's a heretic out there and we just want to see everybody crumble and everybody's a false prophet, right? And you know, Jesus tells us to beware and be watch out. But he doesn't actually really tell us to do much more than just beware. He doesn't tell us to, like, go stone them or, like, <laughs> belittle them on social media. He's just saying watch out because they're going to be everywhere. Um, you need to watch yourself. Um, but I, I say all that because... Um, I really don't want to dissuade us or try to make little of the fact that we need to be diligent about the voices that speak into our lives, yes. especially about spiritual matters. We need to be intentional. We need to be serious. I don't listen to certain ministers. I don't read certain books. I don't, do, I don't watch certain TV programs, um, not because you're, just because I don't. <laughs> and I think there's some air of wisdom about that. Um, and while that's all well and good, I think there is a greater application for this verse here and now other than us just kind of trying to point it up as a scope to examine every false prophet in existence. I think we'd be missing out on an important aspect of what Jesus is speaking of in this passage of scripture if we didn't apply it to our own lives a little closer than we apply it to everybody else. And the reasoning for that is... Um, is going to be made clear in just a moment. But these, these false prophets that we read about in this passage, in this text, it's pseudo-prophetis in the Greek. Aren't you impressed? Woo! You should be impressed. 
That's what false prophets would say, right? Uh, <laughs> the falsehood here is not primarily, in the Greek, is not primarily reflected on what these false prophets are saying, on what these false prophets are teaching. This idea of the pseudo-prophet, yes, heresy is bad, we know that, but you should know the Bible well enough to be able to say, that's not in there, um, if we're being honest. Uh, it's primarily reflective of their nature as an imposter, as a fraud, as one that is impersonating, not necessarily one that is saying the wrong things, but their character is wrong. And right, isn't that what Jesus is getting at here? He's saying this is how you'll test them, not even necessarily based upon what they say, but you have to examine the fruit of their life. Because what they say is going to be deceiving. What they say can be even good in some sense. There can be some truth mixed to it, but the way that we evaluate whether or not we listen to another person, whether or not we let their life speak into ours, is based on, is the fruit of the gospel evident in their lives? Can I look at their family and see that there's evidence of Jesus working there? Can I look at, at their conduct, how they operate offside of like a ministry platform, and is it something that I would want to emulate? Those are important questions to ask. But in fact, the latter half of this passage that we haven't quite jumped into fully, it clarifies things even more because saying the right things and even doing the right things are not enough because you can still operate illegally in a capacity of being a false prophet, of saying the right things, even to a level of doing the right things, of having everybody fooled, including yourself, and still be doing it outside of real relationship with Jesus, and that's terrifying. Guys, I, I, can't, I can't stress this point enough. Right activity is important. I just spent, I don't know, what, 20 minutes telling you that your works are important to God. It's necessary. He cares about what you do. But then Jesus goes on, as we continue reading this, and he goes on to say there, there are going to be people that say the right things, that even have the right activity. They're casting out demons, right? They're performing miracles. They're prophesying in Jesus' name. They say the right thing. They profess, Lord, Lord. They recognize that Jesus is Lord. They're doing the, they're doing the, the Christianese thing. They've got, it, they've got it all pat down. And they still get turned away from heaven. Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So what is it, Jesus? Are works important? Is what I do important or is it not? Because evidently we don't get in based on what we say or on what we do. And Jesus, yeah, Jesus is, he's tricky like that. That was a quote from one of my favorite movies, nobody cares. Um, but <laughs> for real, uh, it's confusing. I get that. But Jesus' teaching here is tiered. And this is something that we have to understand. And if, if I could just explain this simply, first and foremost, it's important to teach truth, right? Heresy, bad. Foundational biblical truth about Jesus, good. <laughs> Pretty basic. But more important than what we say is that it's backed up by the life that we live. Because you can say this and just read it and have it be true all you want, but if it doesn't affect the way that you live, 
uh, it's of real no benefit to anybody, just about. Right? Does that, does that make sense? But Jesus takes it a step further and says, no, it's important that you speak the truth. But not only is it important that you speak the truth, it's important that you live the truth and that it's actually manifest in action because it's by that way people will be able to judge whether or not you're a disciple of mine. Whether or not what you're saying is actually worthwhile. But he goes on and he says, even there are going to be people that'll stand before God on judgment day. And it sounds like they're genuinely shocked when he turns them away because they said, we had the right actions. We had the right words. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. He adds this kind of third, most important tier to this teaching is that we have to have right relationship. More important than any right theology of like knowing and saying the right thing, more important than even right practical like Christian living is that you're in right relationship with God. I, I realize that sounds so simplistic. That sounds so basic. But it's not enough that we can fool everybody else with the right talk or even with the right action. Even to the place where we might fool ourselves. At the end of the day, our success has to be defined by do we know God and are we known by him? That's why I really wanted to take this passage a step further um, than just identifying others like false prophets, you know, and, and looking at ministries and being like, I can see that guy on TBN. He's definitely a false prophet. Or I can look at this minister over here that had some kind of revival and, you know, he said good things and God was moving and he was casting out demons. But man, look at his home life. He's had like six wives. That guy's a false prophet. You know, I, I want to bring it past that. That's easy. But I think it's important for us to look at this maybe a little more introspectively because we can examine people's fruit. And God tells us to do that. I'm not saying don't do that. We're, we're to examine people's teaching. We're to examine people's fruit. But it's impossible for us to examine someone's relationship, their personal, their private relationship with Jesus. I don't know what happens with Darwin and God privately. I don't know the conversations that Adam has in his prayer closet. I don't know what, what happens with Austin and, and, and how he responds to what God's telling him uh, on a daily basis. And the reality is, we don't know. You can take any teacher, you can take, we don't know how serious and legitimate their walk with the Lord is on a personal, private level, because that's the thing. It's private. It happens in secret. It's not exposed for the whole world. We can make good assumption by looking at, you know, the fruit of their life, looking at their teaching, but there are still going to be people that are casting out demons, there are going to be people that are prophesying, and what we have to assume here is they were prophesying accurately. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. They're ministering in the name of Jesus. They've got all the action, but none of the intimacy. And this is so important. You can have all the right action, but action never can replace intimacy with God. I love this because Jesus isn't impressed by like charismatic supernatural displays of power. 
He's not impressed that if you're casting out demons. He's not impressed if you're raising the dead. He's not impressed with how much money you gave to the church or how many missions trips you went on or how many prayer meetings you faithfully attended. What's important to him is that he knows you, to know you intimately. It's this Greek word, genosko. It's, de- it's derived directly from the Hebrew word yada, which, is, it, which means to know someone and to know them intimately. You, you remember all the way back in Genesis where it said that Adam knew Eve? It's talking about intimate relationship there. <laughs> this is the same kind of language that's being used when Jesus says, I never knew you. He wants to have an intimate relationship with someone that can't happen by accident. It's to know someone better than you know yourself. It's this friendship. It's this relationship that is so desired of God. That is so necessary for us if we're going to be in in right relationship with him. If we're going to be successful at the end of the day. There's nothing that's more important in this life than knowing him. It's what Jeremiah 9.23 would say. uh, That thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man glory in his might or the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this. Let him who boasts, boasts about this, that he understands and knows me. This is what success is defined as. You knowing God and God knowing you as a friend. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness. Yay! Judgment. Ooh. (laughs) And righteousness. Marriage of the two. (laughs) In the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. (laughs) There is an intimacy with God to be had. There's a friendship with God to be had. But it doesn't happen by accident. It's not something that's casual. It's not something that is just kind of flippantly thrown out there. In fact, Psalm 24 would tell us that friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. I've got a lot more that we could talk about today, talking about false prophets, talking about knowing Jesus. I'm going to invite Adam to come on up. I feel like the the most fitting and appropriate way, though, this morning to to look at this passage, friends, hear me. It's important that we examine every voice it's important that we examine those that are teachers that would like to influence our life and our relationship with God. And, and I don't think this is just because I'm a pastor that was getting ready to preach this text this morning that it hit me this way. But it's important, friends, that we apply this to our own lives because I think there are people that are false prophets that don't know it. 
There are people that are propagating a false gospel, a false narrative of grace, this false picture of Jesus, that are attending churches, that are going through the motions, that are doing the Jesus thing, that are giving in the offering, that are going on mission trips, that are, that, are, that are doing this thing, but they don't know Jesus. They know about him. They could give you his latest, his stats and statistics or whatnot. But they don't have this relationship, this friendship that is reserved for those who fear him. Because God desires to have relationship beyond you just doing stuff for him, beyond you just having the head knowledge, beyond just just doing the right thing. There is relationship to be had. And and I think the saddest words in all of history is that there are going to be people that stand before him on a day of judgment and say, didn't we do the Jesus thing? Didn't we do all of this in your name? And he's still going to have to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. What God is saying there, that's the same same language that he uses in Matthew chapter 24. When he says that the love of most will grow cold due to lawlessness. Talks about false prophets rising up. It's it's this idea that you would operate under the authority of Jesus, operate in the power and the gifting of God outside of relationship with him. And he says that's lawless, that's illegal. But people are going to do it. And they, they, they take the fact that, well, God's blessing my life. God's blessing my ministry. God's evidently, ple- evidently pleased. And they're missing out on the most important aspect of relationship. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.